0: Welcome to The Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. I'm Chad.
1: And I'm Charlotte.
0: And today, what is this, our third episode in a series on the afterlife? Yes. Today's episode is on heaven.
1: We're getting there. We finally got there. I know, right?
0: (laughs) You know, one thing we've discussed in both of the two other podcasts, we've kind of hammered this point that in the Old Testament, well, throughout the Scriptures, you can see a development in their understanding of the afterlife. In the Old Testament, everyone goes to Sheol, and then in the intertestamental period, or at some point after the exile Babylonian exile, uh, they start to develop a more robust understanding of the afterlife—a heaven, a hell. Um, And how you live in this life, there's continuity between that and what happens after death.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Whereas prior to that, everything was pretty much tied to the land and the people. We've driven that point home, but it should be said that there are some passages, not many, that refer to an afterlife, even resurrection, and we can get into that later. But there there are some. So... For instance, in in Daniel, there's uh, Daniel 12. There's, you know, it talks about the resurrected righteous will shine like the bright sky and stars forever. Mm. You have that imagery in Isaiah where the lion lays down with the lamb. Mm. Uh, The lion becomes vegetarian. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Children playing with snakes. Uh, The earth is full of the knowledge of God um also in isaiah 65 god creates a new heaven and a new earth isaiah 25 god will swallow up death forever wiping away all tears and disgrace which you see that again later on Mm -hmm. uh, in revelation ezekiel there's (laughs) there's that wild vision of the throne room in that first chapter of uh, ezekiel so there is some stuff there, I think it's important to, you know. It's just not much because as we pointed out, uh, it's developing.
1: And as you pointed out too just then, those some of those themes get developed again in the tools in Revelation, right? Mm-hmm. Or touched on again. I think particularly you've made the direct connections between Isaiah and Revelation and mm-hmm. and how those two accord with one another, but also this idea of a return to the garden, a return to paradise Mm -hmm. there. Even a broader aspect of that, of an undoing of all the curses of Genesis Mm -hmm. 3, right? So it's significant that the child is playing with a snake, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just these are dangerous animals. That's a particular animal (laughs) uh, that was named as a curse. Right and is alluding, you know, is talking about a place where once again, what happened in that garden? God walked with us in the cool of the evening breeze, right, and uh, enjoyed mm-hmm. our company, and we were together, and there was, it was paradise. Um, yeah. So a longing for a restoration of that, which includes, I guess, we'll point this out since we talked about it some last week too. That restoration includes the restoration of nature, of all things, of the entire created order. Um, Nothing's left out of that. If snakes and lions are changed and redeemed to something else, that's showing us how broad that restoration is meant to be.
0: Yeah, fantastic, yeah. I mean, it's significant that the scriptures are kind of framed or like, Bookends are held together with these two gardens. You have the garden in in Genesis and then again in Revelation 22, you know, where the river of life flows through it. So, yeah, the tree of life is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what does Jesus say about heaven? I mean, he he says the word heaven a lot, but as far as describing it,
1: yeah, I mean, we have the one saying about kind of in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, many rooms, something, but otherwise it, it sounds when he's talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that that's something that's being revealed here now. I mean, in his work through his work and through the work of his followers, that that's the thing he's revealing through the parables and through his preaching and teaching is showing us what the kingdom of heaven is, that it's not a high in the sky by and by place but something that we are to is already here somehow in this world around us
0: it's here and and it's coming
1: right right
0: yeah so I mean if we want to look to him for any description I mean we're talking about it's like a mustard seed yeast that leavens flour all the um, sermon on the mount stuff so, yeah.
1: Yeah. And that man cannot answer a question straight.
0: <laughs> no, he does not.
1: <laughs> which is maybe how we should be answering questions too. I mean, you know, people ask him direct questions about things and he tells them yeah. a story that, you know, and sometimes seems to have nothing to do with that question. But <laughs> but yeah, the kingdom of heaven is, is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, but grows into... Not just a great bush, but something that's large enough to give shade to creatures and for birds to nest in it is a, a huge tree that uh, is medicinal and uh, uh, good for all kinds of reasons, for all kinds of people. And it just happens. But it's like here now and can be somehow described by very ordinary things, but in extraordinary mm-hmm. ways. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, he doesn't seem to be talking about you will be, your expectation is to be assumed into the clouds.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think that does come later in the generally in the Christian tradition. I mean, the first century or so, our believers expect that he is going to return imminently, right? Yeah. And I think it's after that generation has passed away that that expectation ceases to be at the forefront of their mind. And then we have more of this emphasis on a heaven, a paradise, something, some some other reward that we will face, be given after death uh, rather than in this world.
0: But you find that in him too. I mean, going back to the rich man and Lazarus, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess this kind of relates, you know, we talk about, this life and the next life, right? But in a sense, it's, it's not really two different lives because of the continuity. It's one life in two different, you know, so when Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like this and he's expecting people to live it now
1: mm-hmm.
0: because that's what ultimately is going to be.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Maybe, I mean, I understand why we talk about, you know, this life and the next life, but in some ways that's unhelpful as if I'm not going to be another person there. It's going to be me, some continuity with who I am now. Right. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think what's interesting or useful in those things of Jesus is the, I mean, about the eminence of the kingdom of God is the fact that that means that it's something that we should be able to experience now. I think that's hopeful. Right. Um, that in the midst of you know, everything wrong that's happening all of the time, mm-hmm. that there's some thin veil through which we should be able to see something of the kingdom of God. And I think for most of us, the way that we see it is by seeing the things that aren't the kingdom of God uh, and being okay. able to call them out and to name them, to say mm-hmm. that is not how the kingdom is to be ordered and to begin that work of ordering the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is not a place of vast inequality. You know, the kingdom of God has no hierarchy. The kingdom and the kingdom of God, there's plenty good room, there's plenty of food, there's plenty for everyone, you know? I mean, I guess they're in some ways, they're the loftiest of expectations because it literally is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, Mm
0: -hmm. but in the
1: other respects, uh, Jesus at least seems to think we should be able to achieve at least some semblance of those things here. We should be able to grasp them. And when we aren't, there's a way in which we're not actually placing faith in those promises of Jesus. When we aren't trying to grasp them, then we're showing that we don't really believe that they're real, that we can achieve them, that we should work toward Mm them. Right. Right. Very nice. Yeah,
0: he definitely expects his followers to live according to the kingdom
1: now. But this notion of a heaven, I think there's a couple things I think it may be useful to unwrap. There, I mean, at least one of them we talked about in the first episode, which is, is this a tween place between death and the resurrection of our bodies? Mm-hmm. Is it some? Is it also the language that we're using to describe? The heavenly city, something that we will be in after the resurrection. And then, yeah, we have this, again, myriad of images, right? So there's at least a paradise. I'm going to use that as kind of a return to the garden, those, those sets of images. We've got a heavenly city, Jerusalem coming down. We've got what you've talked about in Isaiah and Revelation as well, this heavenly court scene. Uh, where there's this eternal worship that everybody is engaged in somehow. Yeah. I think those are kind of the major three, which are in some ways competing, in some ways not. Like, I mean, at least Revelation seems to mix them together in some way. Yeah. Say
0: Say the three again.
1: I'm going to say paradise. Yeah. So kind of a return to the garden, kind of lush vision like that. Yeah. A heavenly city.
0: Right, the Jerusalem, right.
1: And then this heavenly court scene. Okay, yeah. Worship around the throne scene, which seemed to be distinct in some ways and yet not.
0: Yeah, because the court, the throne room imagery shows up like in Revelation 7 and the Holy cities later on at the end,
1: 22. Right. You know, and people like Irenaeus were like, yeah, they're just like three separate places but they're all heaven <laughs> and no. almost like you get a choice maybe <laughs> of, of how you'd like to spend your time. But regardless of that, you know, Irenaeus, Augustine, everybody is going to say it doesn't matter. You will see God through in all of those places. I mean, God is yeah. ubiquitous. We keep saying this, but you will be able to see God all the time, everywhere. There will be no way, there will be no place And no part of your experience where you are not seeing God. You will never not see God in heaven.
0: Right. There's no sun because the glory of God is lighting everything up. Yeah. Whatever that means. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of whatever that means, too.
0: The imagery in Revelation is fascinating, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when it talks about the the city because it gives specific measurements It has walls, it has gates and gives specific measurements like this is how it's going to be it's you know it's hard to read at least that portion where it's measuring out the walls and the gates and such uh, to say well that's how it's literally going to be i don't know
1: well it's important i mean first it's like it's absolutely insanely huge right right it's, it's unlike any city even we know i think uh, and then, yeah, for all the emphasis on describing the gates, too, the gates are always open.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a walled city, a fortified city with gates, but the gates are always open there because there is no enemy. Right? There's nothing to protect the people or God from. So mm-hmm. uh, that's which is really kind of interesting when we keep like this kind of popular mythology of St Peter meeting people at the gates of heaven and at maybe the gates, bouncing yeah. them
0: <laughs> and <laughs>
1: where what we really have in revelation is the blessed are safe and happy there there's yeah. no concern about that
0: so here's my question
1: mm.
0: we've got all of this we've got all of this imagery in revelation and then we have all a number of statements in the epistles that make it sound like we have no idea what it's like, but it's going to be great, mm-hmm. and it hinges on on this idea. Part of it hinges on this idea that God cannot be seen, has never been seen, and cannot be seen. But we will see God. Right, First uh, John chapter three. We're God's children now. What we will be is not revealed. But what we know is that when Christ is revealed, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. Paul says similar stuff, you know, that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we'll know fully as we are fully, fully known. I mean, this these passages are where... Part partly where this idea of the beatific vision is that we will we'll do something that hasn't been possible before, which is to see the God who can't be seen, as you sure. were kind of when you were talking about revelation. But well, I guess my question is, when I read those passages, it sounds like, well, you know, Paul will say what God has in store, nobody's comprehended it, nobody's seen it, nobody's heard about it. So. I guess when I hear that, then when I read these this imagery in Revelation, I'm reading that imagery in Revelation as communicating something that's really beyond my comprehension, but it's still uh, communicating some truth. So when it does the measurement of the walls, I'm not assuming that's how it's gonna be, although I don't know.
1: Maybe I would just point to kind of the, the overall context of Revelation as being mm-hmm. written to a a church facing violent persecution, encouragement to martyrs, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think this really lavish description of the city of of God, of Jerusalem coming down, of a restoration of things here is meant to give hope there. I mean, it's drawing, like we've said, on the earlier imagery in Isaiah and other places. So it's not a disconnect. I'm not trying to say like it's made up there, but that you press into that imagery for the hope to the people that you're writing to. And I don't know that necessarily those things are, I mean, I don't, I know you weren't saying this in some way in conflict either. I mean, because, you know, even the idea that, like you say, in revelation there, there's no need for the sun because of God's radiance. What, could that possibly mean you know what could that possibly look like um and so we haven't quite gone that far there but let's talk some more about this idea of the beatific vision because Mm -hmm. i think people maybe tend to think of that very literally like they Mm -hmm. see god like you know an old dude with a beard they get to finally see that and that's not I don't think what Paul is talking about or John and certainly not what the early church um, gets out of that, that they're saying, I mean, God still is ubiquitous and and incorporeal and all of those other things that we believe about God, but that there's some kind of spiritual site that Mm -hmm. we're granted where we can always see God, God and God's activity and God as all in all. Right. That we could Mm -hmm. see God in each other, too, in a way that Mm -hmm. we can't perceive now and the way that we can't perceive really often Mm -hmm. God's activity in the world here. But we will be able to, you know, in that in that vision.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I. Two two things come to mind immediately. I guess we could see Christ face to face, and maybe you know, in his eternal incarnate state. Yeah, which is awesome. But yeah, I agree. If we're talking about seeing God, in my understanding, there's two general schools of thought, and I'll just use Aquinas and Nyssa as foils for each one. I mean, for Aquinas, and I think this is how a lot of folks kind of think of is when you enter into the divine presence you see the essence, and that's surprising to me that he would say that, but you're essentially perfected. Mm -hmm. You arrive, you're perfected, um, whatever that means, and nobody really tries to describe it. For Nyssa, the idea is that God is infinite, and so when you enter the divine presence, you cannot comprehend the infinite presence, but you can, for eternity, keep going to higher and higher levels of that direct experience, whatever that is. And and he or those who kind of go along board with that describe it as simultaneously, you know, this desire for God being and simultaneous satisfaction. Unlike in this life where you have a desire and then it's satisfied and then you're full, it's like this ongoing, uh, constant progress is how, how he refers to it. I just bring that up because I think some people say, well, you get to heaven, you become perfect it's going to be boring. I mean, you've heard people talk about heaven's going to be boring because there's nothing going on. But I think there's a way to think about it where your experience of God, however that is, can be progressive. The other thing I was saying is the whole sight thing, you know, we will see God. Uh, We will see face to face. Um, I wonder how much of that is, you know, sight is such, is so often used for um, knowledge and full experience of something. That maybe that's why instead of you know we will. I don't know what would be some other, of the five senses we might put in this place. None of them are gonna. We'll hear God, but of course, hear God as we are heard. We'll taste God. Yeah. As I mean, all of that makes sense. I just wonder how using that particular sense is more about more full experience for the person. I see. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But that's the language around around perception and understanding. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's interesting though that yeah, I mean in City of God, Augustine ends up in a place, you know, where he's, I don't know, almost thinking out loud about the resurrected body mm-hmm. and kind of wants to say, you know, okay, it's a it's a physical resurrection for sure, mm-hmm. material body. And that there is something actually different about our very sight that maybe we're going to call it spiritual sight or spiritual eyes, but there's something perhaps different there because it's not just for him anyway, I don't know, um, kind of being able to like, I know that God is everywhere (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I know that God is in charge and is, you know. All of, all of those things that we talk about, mm-hmm. but to be able to perceive it all of the time, I, th- I think it's more, I think he really, and Paul too, really is talking about a, an actual sense in some way, mm-hmm. and it's probably distinct from our five senses, sure, but, but that we can actually, I don't know, we Perce- perceive in real time the yeah. activities, the movement of God. Although I wish I hadn't said real time, because the other thing I wanted to bring up was I think we, you know, when people say, as you mentioned, like heaven sounds boring and, you know, there's nothing to do there, that kind of language. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think that's still thinking of heaven as a temporal place, as a place of Mm -hmm. infinite time, Mm -hmm. rather than an eternal place which stands outside of time that, that... Which we have
0: no experience
1: of right yeah right. so yeah. it's very hard to talk about like what any of that could be like we have no experience of that um and it's more than a you know it's it's more than like a stasis or something but also like if you're locked in this beatific vision and are able to see god in all in all how, do, how could that be boring even I if know. that's like it and you're caught in that I guess, you know, we would have to describe it as like one moment to be caught in somehow for forever in some ways. But I mean, it's the perfection of bliss.
0: Bliss, yeah.
1: So you don't go, oh, no, I'm. it's just too much of that. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think that's how that could possibly work.
0: If I think the beatific vision is going to be boring, my conception of God is pretty weak.
1: Yeah, but we'd end up with, I mean, you know, the descriptions of heaven that those people who think it might be boring cling to do sound very boring, because it is like a country club in the sky. You know, it's like life part two. There's like, you got to learn to play the harp and join a choir.
0: You're singing all the time.
1: You're singing all the time. It sounds like work, you know, because they also (laughs) seem to think, you know, that the worship in heaven is going to. Uh, mirrors our worship here. And I think in the Eastern Orthodox, certainly would say that. Yes. But our um, worship in the Western Protestant churches, and we have to do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. And oh, no, thank you. And oh, no, thank you, my boo. I
0: don't want to do it past lunch. You talking that all
1: eternity? <laughs> yeah. You know, some people are at church until 3 p.m. <laughs> that
0: is crazy. That's a long time.
1: But I think yeah. if we're talking, you know, but time is not, there's just no way that time is going to work the same. I mean, yeah. even if we're talking about one of these images of heaven that is like the paradise where where there's just this beauty, et cetera, and it's distinct in some way, or this heavenly city that has come down to this plane, time cannot work the same because Mm-hmm. God is has completely intersected into that time that the eternal yeah. and the and h- human history the our time uh, infinite time have collided mm-hmm. in such a way that it is a completely different experience. So you can call it Jeremy Bear Me or, or anything else, but it's beyond our conception, our grasp of of what time is for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah fascinating. So what's different? I think there's probably two primary things that are supposed to be different. And that is, and I guess we can talk about this in the, in the last episode, but patterned after Christ that he is no longer subject to sin and no longer subject to corruption,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is just, again, it's hard to imagine what that would be like. Well, I want to take that back. Maybe it's not that, I mean, the physical part of corruption, that's kind of hard to imagine, except everything stays the same. But, and maybe this is why the kingdom of God is a liable possibility in this world, because we can imagine a world pretty much like this one, and people aren't doing the things to each other, or indifferent to each other, or hating each other. I mean, that's not a logical impossibility. And, you know, I, and this is the thing: if we if we can't do that now, why are we going to be happy about that? A kind of state where that's not occurring any But again, who knows? Who knows what happens to make sure that you know we no longer strive against each other and so on. But I don't know. Where am I going with that, Charlotte?
1: I wonder if some that some of that need for or perceived need for striving is reduced or is eliminated because as you're saying this satisfaction of being in the presence yeah. of god um that the re- part of the realization is oh there's there isn't any reason to strive because there is this isn't a, a limited resource right yeah. so that that should take part of it away but i think something else that kind of alluding to there or making me think of I think we know a lot of people that are gonna be really upset when they find out who else is in heaven.
0: (laughs) You know there are.
1: (laughs) They'd just be like, no, I didn't expect to see you here. Um, (laughs) But that, you know, maybe I do like the ideas of like some kind of process or continued becoming in the afterlife to overcome some of those things, you know? And then you said, like, Nissa talking about what isn't befitting to be in the presence of God is burned away, you know, mm-hmm. and that's got to, it's our corruptibility and things like that that don't accord with the divine nature, but it's also going to be that that striving and the things that uh, rub up against the goodness and the love of God. Yeah.
0: And we're going to be together.
1: See that part sometimes doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: hell is other people.
1: But I think I mean <laughs> th- I do love the idea of the beatific vision, including being able to actually see God and other people. Mm-hmm. Because although I believe that <laughs> to my core <laughs> that everyone is created in the image of God, mm-hmm. uh and is equally uh, dignified in that image. There are some people who absolutely try that for me. (laughs) And so that experience then of being afforded to actually see, you know, when you get closer to some people because you're able to share each other's stories and each other's pain, Mm -hmm. and then that might be a place where you gain vulnerability and you gain trust through those interactions, but they happen over time again but the ability to or the hope of the ability to be able to look at people and to take that in and to know who they are and how God has worked in their lives and how God is continuing to work through them and and show through them to you Mm -hmm. um, that would really be something
0: yeah yeah so what do you think the takeaway is Charlotte you want to go to heaven
1: Wait, should I should I steal what you said after the first episode? I don't know what it'll be, but I can't wait to find out. Something. There you
0: go.
1: I mean, I yeah. I like I like what Ernie says. Some some stuff about this vineyard where each grape will just burst into your hand into gallons and gallons of wine, and that sounds really <laughs> nice to me. <laughs> Our hangovers in
0: heaven.
1: No, my body is perfected. <laughs> <laughs> it will get drunk on the love of God.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. Mm-hmm.